Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast. Collect Tom and Paul here to bring you the latest media law headlines. We'll be discussing the Sydney Morning Herald's attempt to out Rebel Wilson, and we have updates on Julian Sonja's extradition. But first, I want to discuss the judgment in Banks and Cadwallader. On the 13th of June 2022, Aaron Banks's libel claim against Carol Cadwallader was dismissed by Mrs Justice Stein. Banks sued Cadwallader over comments in a TED Talk and tweet relating to his relationship with the Russian government. Mr Justice Sani had previously found that both the TED Talk and the tweet bore the meaning that Banks had lied about a secret relationship he had with the Russian government in relation to acceptance of foreign funding in breach of the law. Cadwallader stated that she did not intend to convey that meaning and therefore dropped her truth defence and relied solely on the public interest defence at trial. Stein accepted that Cadwallader did not intend to convey the meaning found by Sani, but that she did intend to convey a different, less serious meaning, that he had lied about the extent of his relationship with the Russian government, and that there were grounds to investigate whether or not the source of banks' donations to the Brexit campaign was foreign funding in breach of electoral laws. The judge held that Cadwallader had a reasonable belief that the TED talk and tweet were in the public interest. However, Stein also found that Cadwallader did not continue to have a reasonable belief in the public interest after a later determination from the Electoral Commission found that there was no evidence that banks had broken the law. Therefore, after that point, the defence fell away. Cadwallader was still successful, however, as the judge found that the continued publication after this time did not cause banks serious reputational harm. After repeated suggestions by Cadwallader under cross-examination that the litigation constituted a slap, Stein held that in circumstances where Miss Cadwallader has no defence of truth and her defence of public interest has succeeded only in part, it is neither fair nor apt to describe this as a slap suit. So the general response from the press to this judgment has been that it's, it's a victory for public interest journalism. And of course, you know, that defence did succeed in part. But I wonder to what extent we can really describe this as a victory when at the end of the day, Cadwallader was sued personally in the first place and had to go through this entire ordeal. Um, I believe it's, it's gone on for about three years um, without really the support of the Guardian or the Observer or TED because they weren't brought uh, into the claim. Yes, I think you're right, Colette. This is a, a mixed picture. Um, I was I was struck by the judge's comments on uh, slaps. Um, the government, of course, is bound to uh, refer to this decision as evidence of a slaps problem uh, and will not engage. We can be uh, we can be sure and will not engage with the, the comments that the, that the judge has made. Um, it, it's interesting, though, if we think about this as a slap, um, prompts us to think about well what what is a slap is 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 this de- is this term is this label a slap simply uh, something we can apply liberally uh, to describe any attempt by an individual uh, to object to uh, derogatory comments that are made about them which um, they can show affects their rep- reputation um is it uh, something that journalists um should be able to um, use to their advantage in order to publish stories that people don't want published. 
Um, or is it a serious problem um, that we um, uh, that we need to uh, address? And there are elements of each of these aspects, I think, in the uh, facts of this case and in the decision itself. As you say, Colette, it's troubling that Carol Cadwallader was sued personally um, in uh, an era in which the cult of personality has now reached uh, a terrifying zenith in which uh, the problems of society are seen as residing in the hands of a limited number of people and in which vitriolic outbursts, usually through social media, are the norm. Um, it's awful that Carol Cadwallader has had to go through this ordeal um, th- for the for the past three years. What would have been much better is if um, uh, banks had sued an institution uh, rather than Cadwallader directly. Uh, that would not have removed all the um, the concerns and the guilt and the anguish uh, from Cadwallader, of course. Um, but at least it would have given us some comfort um, that ultimately... Uh, it was the institution that was being targeted, the institution of journalism, rather than her personally. So I quite agree um, about that. I think the the the, the trouble here is that um, there's probably not broad, broader strokes that we can take from the facts of this case because they are very peculiar. Um, Cadwallader's report appeared in a, t- a TED talk rather than in. Um, an article in the Observer itself, and because Ted is based in uh, America, um, it was easier procedurally for banks, and certainly cheaper, to to sue Cadwallader rather than to sue um, Ted uh, itself. So that's that's one aspect of it, but the the other aspect that I think does require a great deal of thought is the government's plan to try and do something about what it perceives to be a problem of wealthy individuals suing in order to suppress legitimate discussion of their political influence. Now, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me why this Tory government would be so interested in this. I can't quite figure out what's what's in it for them or for their supporters. Um, perhaps someone can enlighten me on that. Um, but as the as the judge emphasised in this case, there was a legitimate uh, cause here to bring the claim. Um, if there had been no basis at all to Banks's uh, case, then Cadwallader could have applied uh, to strike out the application as uh, frivolous. Um, or spurious, or or any anything else, um, but that wasn't the case here. The court found that there was that section one of the Defamation Act was satisfied, and therefore there was a legitimate complaint that required the court to carefully consider defences. Now, the fact that the defences partially succeeded here means that the decision vindicates both Cadwallader and Banks. It vindicates Banks' entitlement to sue to protect his reputation and Cadwallader's right to report in the uh, inflammatory terms that that she did on the basis of a public interest in that discussion. Tom, I want to come to you on the question of meaning. And this is something we discussed a little bit in the last couple of newscasts. Uh, Obviously, this whole defence worked on a different meaning to that that was found at the preliminary hearing. 
perhaps you can give us a little bit more explanation as to why that is the case under public interest defences. Yes, okay. So um, the way things work now is that there is a preliminary hearing a long time before a case comes to trial to determine what the statement complained of means in the eyes of the law. And we've talked about this in recent podcasts. Now, you've set out very helpfully, Colette, what the uh, judge in that preliminary meaning hearing, Mr. Justice Saini, said the statement meant. Um, And uh, this is in the eyes of the law at this point, the one and only meaning that the statement is said to bear. Right. Um, As such, that is the meaning that defendant would need to prove true to run a successful truth defense. Now, Carol Cadwallader immediately acknowledged she could not prove that meaning that meaning true because that's not what she had ever set out to say um it was it was the meaning the court came up with was at odds with what she had intended to say now at this point everybody who's studied defamation will repeat like a mantra intention is not relevant in defamation and that is correct doctrinally speaking um the authorial intention is not relevant to uh, the determination of meaning what is relevant is the meaning that uh, the notional reasonable reader would put on the statement. But the point is that the court, because of the single meaning rule, has to come up with just one. And this is on practical grounds. And I've been complaining about this uh, in a kind of uh, on and off way for the last few months, and regular listeners will have have heard me do that. And I've said um, through the course of those complaints that, uh, that it's quite an an early stage in my thinking on this matter, and it may well change um, uh, in, in the coming months. Um, so I'm still trying to work through exactly what the problems are that the single meaning rule creates and whether the benefits outweigh the disbenefits. But uh, this is case represents a, a, a particular problem with the single meaning rule. Um, because once that meaning has been determined, the case then eventually goes to trial. And as you rightly say, takes three years for us to end up in this position where we finally have a judgment, during which time um, Cadwallader herself is under an enormous amount of strain. And in the end, she succeeds with the argument that statement means X. I reasonably believe that publishing a statement saying Y is in the public interest. Therefore, defense succeeds. So she successfully persuades the court that she reasonably believed it to be in the public interest to publish a statement saying something other than what the court had already determined this statement meant, and this provided a defense. Now, that, the problem there to me is the single meaning rule's insistence on finding a single meaning. And it, it seems to be something that exists purely to make it practically possible to have a trial. It's a practical measure, and it might be defensible as a practical measure, and there will doubtless be practitioners of this field out there who say this is the only and best way that we've ever come up with for doing this, and we have to do it, and that's fine. My point is not that this could be done better. My point is to try to expose the problem of legal fictions in our legal system, because I'm uh, an analyst of the law, not a practitioner of it. 
And the idea of a single meaning for a statement is for reasons I've given in other recent podcasts in which I won't repeat this time, um, entirely unrealistic uh, and, and thus problematic. Now, if we're talking about slaps, and obviously we have been in recent weeks talking about the, the, the issue of slaps, these strategic lawsuits against public participation. The judge has said in this case that this isn't a slap, but let's assume arguendo that it is, right? Just for fun. Let's pretend that everyone who thinks this is a slap is right, and it is in fact a slap. If it is, then Carol Cadwallader has spent three years in effect being victimized because of it. Um, is there a way in which that could have been avoided? With my misgivings about the single meaning rule, I start to wonder whether maybe there is. If the single meaning rule itself were reformed, if it were acknowledged three years ago that this is a statement that could bear multiple meanings, including the one that Carol Cadwallader ultimately relied on and won on, in respect of her Section 4 public interest defence, then maybe she wouldn't have had to go through this entire process. The case could have either been dropped or settled a long, long time ago. Um, so I think there is an issue there with uh, with meaning, um, and uh, doubtless practitioners in the field will tell me this is, this is wrong and the only way that we can do it. And uh, I might well be wrong about it. I haven't finished thinking about it. I, I, I wish I had more time at the moment to think this through in greater detail. Unfortunately, I'm still only about two thirds of the way through a massive pile of undergraduate marking, uh, along with most of my colleagues in this field uh, at this point in the year. Um, but I will try and turn my attention to it a bit later in the summer and, and give it a proper raking over. There is one other thing that I think is really interesting about this case, um, which uh, I, th I think deserves a mention, um, on a completely different issue. And this is to do with the court's determination of serious harm under Section 1. Um, there's, a, there's a comment from uh, Mrs. Justice Stain in this case. Um, paragraph 94 in the judgment. It's a very long judgment, so if anyone's looking for it, paragraph 94 and uh, surrounding paragraphs for the analysis. Um she talks about Twitter and the way that the, sing the, the, the uh, serious harm test works for uh, publications on Twitter. And in particular, makes the, makes the observation that Cadwallader's Twitter account is most likely largely followed by people who broadly agree with her politically. And thus that when she speaks on her Twitter account through her tweets, she does so into an echo chamber. And thus what she says to that echo chamber is unlikely to cause serious reputational harm to Aaron Banks because most of the people in Carol Cadwallader's echo chamber agree with her and won't like Aaron Banks and will already think ill of him for their various re reasons. And this, I just wonder whether it opens a bit of uh, uh, the old proverbial can of worms. Um, are we now starting saying that if you put stuff out on Twitter, um, then chances are the people who see it are in your echo chamber and already think uh, ill of the individual concerned. If that's the case, then let's reopen Riley and Murray, shall we? <laughs> which I've had problems with before and listeners will remember because uh, no doubt the people who follow Laura Murray on Twitter and uh, will see her tweets regularly 
are people who are in her echo chamber and are left-wing Labour activist Corbynites who will already presumably think ill of Rachel Riley. Um, and there was even some evidence uh, in that case of uh, people who'd replied to the tweet essentially supporting Murray's position. And we could start thinking of a whole bunch of other cases, and there will be plenty more in future. You know, go back to uh, pretty much any case you've seen on, on, on Twitter and think, how would this differ if we're only taking, only assuming that the individuals who follow these people comprise an echo chamber who already agree with what is said? I mean, does that just absolve most tweets of the potential to cause serious harm? Mm. Um, I wonder if this has really been thought through mm. um, by, by uh, uh, those concerned in this case. I, I think it's going to prove to be problematic because, you know, if I were defence counsel in an upcoming case involving Twitter, I'd be straight on this um, and, and saying there's, there's, there's nothing to see here. Is it not, though, in line with Le Show and the argument that serious harm has to be based on factual evidence rather than anything more esoteric? It, it is. Um, it makes a large assumption about the nature of Twitter followings. Yeah. Um, the, the idea that people, uh, in large part, will will follow um, individuals because they agree with them, and about the nature of the expression itself being opinionated. Yeah. Um, of course, this wasn't found to be an expression of opinion. See earlier comments on the difficulty distinguishing fact and opinion um, that I've made on the uh, on the podcast before. Um, but yeah, it is related to the show. It's, it's related to this desire to have an extra serious harm threshold, which is in itself clearly not well thought through. I mean, if you if you look at the judgment, I think one of the things that really does become clear from it um, is the difficulties that a single legislative provision has caused. Uh, Parliament passes section one one section in a statute and the only bit of it that we're concerned about in most cases unless there's a corporate claimant is section one subsection one so a single subsection um mrs justice stain enumerates 13 principles that the courts have had to come up with since 2013 in order to try to apply section one and that's just as far as we've gotten in the first decade <laughs> yeah. 13 principles in order to interpret a single subsection in a statute. Mm. Often it is thought that codifying rules in statute simplifies them. It doesn't. It creates more and more and more problems. There's everything that needs to be interpreted. And there are lots of arguments about how it applies in this situation, that situation. And, and the logic doesn't end with Twitter either. You could apply this to specific publications and say, well, their readership will be of a particular mindset, right wing, left wing, that uh, they will receive stories about certain individuals um, and it will not change their opinion of that individual, uh, only cement it. Mm. Um, It also takes us far away from the notional reasonable reader. Mm -hmm. Well, it was, of course, supposed to be the focus of uh, the way we look at meaning. But I think it's short-sighted, though, isn't it? Because I, I mean... The, the the point is that if you're thinking about someone's reputation, uh, this uh, this libel um, is then used evidentially by per, the recipient in trying to convince some third party uh, to think as they do. 
Um, so that surely is is closer to the to the to the truth of what we're trying to do with defamation. Um, so that the third party then has the opportunity of an independent source through now a Google search to find out whether the allegation is is true or not. Um, so, for example, if the Daily Mail reader says, well, well, you know, all lefty lawyers are blah, 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 uh, and tries to convince a non-Daily Mail reader of, of this view, the non-Daily Mail reader could um, do a quick Google search and actually discover, no, no, this allegation that's been made is false. Um, so I, I sort of find that that logic incredibly problematic that, well, the, the Twitter followers... Uh, themselves hold that view the question then is yes but what about the people following those twitter followers and the people following those twitter followers and when you get to the sort of fifth and sixth generation of people who are followers that's that's the concern this this whole echo chamber thing is just a bit of a nonsense i'm gonna move on because i want to uh, have time to discuss the sydney morning herald's attempt to out the australian actress and comedian Rebel Wilson, who last week revealed on Instagram that she's found love with a woman. The celebrations were soured when the admission of the gossip columnist Andrew Colney said that he'd known about the news and given the actress 27 hours to respond before publishing. Hornery complained that Wilson had opted to gazump his story by sharing the news herself. His own admission of his attempt to out Wilson's deeply personal news sparked immediate outrage globally. Australian media law experts have pointed out that editorial misjudgments and a culture which prioritises scoops over ethical standards can flourish in an industry which remains largely self-regulated. Australia has 14 sets of codes and standards that apply to journalists, but research from the law and ethics academic Dr. Sasha Molleritz at the University of Technology, Sydney, shows that few journalists know these codes comprehensively, and most of them rely on their own morals in guiding their work. In this case, the main ethical principle clearly breached was privacy, that individuals are entitled to privacy unless newsrooms deemed disclosure would serve the public interest. There was no public interest here. Yet breaking this rule rarely has any legal ramifications for Australian journalists. The industry regulator, the Australian Press Council, confirmed that it has received a number of complaints over the Wilson report. But if it rules that those complaints are valid, the paper ha- all the paper has to do is print a correction and an apology. So I think this incident raises questions about the state of privacy law in Australia. As I understand it, there isn't a privacy tort. Um, so there's not an obvious route for Wilson to, to take legal action in this case. Yeah, so um, interestingly, Australia uh, could have developed its own misuse of private information tort. It's had two opportunities to do so, both of which uh, it has failed to grasp. The first uh, was through the common law following a decision uh, called Australian Broadcasting uh, Corporation and Lena Game Meets, which was in 2001. And uh, was a decision in the Australian High Court, which is the APEC Court over there, uh, which was uh, relied upon quite heavily um, by our own House of Lords, as it then was, uh, when it decided Campbell and MGN uh, Limited. Um, 
the the decision broadly followed uh, the reasoning that we see in America uh, with their um, America, as we know, has two two sort of privacy torts uh that uh, we refer to often on this uh, on the show um the um, disclosure of embarrassing facts uh, and uh, intrusion into seclusion uh, so it broadly followed the reasoning of uh, the disclosure of embarrassing facts and talked about things like whether whether the the um publication would be perceived um as offensive to the to the reasonable person uh, the second op- opportunity that Australia had uh, was in 2013 when the Australian Law Reform Commission uh, was uh, tasked uh, by the then Labour government uh, to devise a, a statutory privacy tort uh, that would protect uh, individuals uh, in the in the digital era. So this wasn't uh, a plan simply for um, individuals to be able to protect themselves from intrusive press coverage. It was much broader than that, sort of thinking about uh, threats to privacy brought about by technological development, drones, that sort of thing. Um, uh, sadly, uh, before the ALRC could deliver its report, the Labour government was booted out uh, by the Australian equivalent of the Conservative Party, which of course is known as the Liberal Party, very misleadingly. Um, And so Australia sort of remains in this position where it technically does, but actually doesn't have a privacy tort in the ABC and Lena Gay meets is there in the common law, but doesn't seem to have been followed up. Uh, And there's different reasons why that might be. I mean, our friend David Rolfe, uh, who we've had on before, uh, has has sort of said there's, there's really two reasons why this might be the case. One is uh, that um, there isn't quite the same intrusive press culture in Australia that there is in the UK. Um, and so there's not those sort of legal pioneers, or what we might call legal pioneers out there, like uh, the Naomi Campbells, uh, Max Mosley's, etc., with deep pockets to be able to uh, pursue litigation uh, to its conclusion. Um, and and the second is that uh, Australia has a strong culture of um, in in its law of pursuing uh, defamation claims, uh, and so claimants uh, and their lawyers are more familiar with defamation, and there have been cases where defamation has been brought to sort of broadly protect privacy-type interests. Um, There there was one case, I forget the name of it now, of uh, I think it was a rugby star uh, who had a photograph taken of him um, without permission and uh, he was was naked. Uh, And this was published in a newspaper. It was quite a grainy image and he sued uh, the basis in defamation, the basis of the claim being that... um, uh, he he thought that his reputation was damaged by people thinking he was the type of person that would pose naked uh, for a photograph to be published in a newspaper. Um, so the Rebel Wilson um, uh, incident here, we can't call it a case, um, is interesting. It'd be fascinating to see whether uh, she brought uh, a misuse of private information claim uh, in these circumstances. Um, or whether she would bring a defamation claim. She she's got uh, she's brought a defamation claim before, of course. 
um, and uh, um, and was successful uh, with that. As you say, Colette, it does raise issues uh, about the protection of privacy, both in Australia, um, but also it's relevant to us over in the UK. Um, now, we might sit here and feel smug. I don't think we should ever feel smug. Um, but we might sit here thinking, well, we have the misuse of private information taught. And so we are all protected from this kind of behaviour. Um, well, that didn't seem to protect Philip Schofield because, of course, if you remember, the the allegation that was made was that he was also outed um, and that his coming out was not entirely voluntary. Um, and, uh, of course, although we do have the misuse of private information taught, which is now a mature jurisprudence, um, it's only those that can afford to bring a claim uh, that actually do. Um which would be fine, I suppose, if newspapers solely targeted public figures in a narrow sense or even a broad sense of that term. But the, the sad reality is that newspapers don't just interfere with the private lives of the rich and famous, as they claim to. Um, they um, ruin lives uh, across the board. Now you might think, well, well, how, why, why would a newspaper do that? How could a newspaper ruin someone's life of someone who isn't known to the public? Well, the, the normal, the usual reason how and why a newspaper does that is because an individual uh, has someone close to them that dies, and dies in circumstances that our our morbid press or our morbid audience um, finds fascinating and wants to know more about. Um, so we get stories like Dad Dies Choking on a Yorkshire Pud uh, that appears uh, in newspapers, not simply local newspapers, but national newspapers. Um, that story, I think, appeared in the in the Daily Sport uh, or the Daily Star, one of one of those type of uh, tabloids. Uh, this was just an, uh, an individual who had died in tragic circumstances um, and had his daughter. Uh, was left uh, with the uh, with the grief, but also having to deal with uh, journalists uh, phoning up the house, trying to contact her, trying to run a story uh, about it. Um, our own uh, regulatory system still remains in need of reform. I would say dire reform. It's still a voluntary system that not all newspapers are part of. The Guardian, the Financial Times, the Independent remain outside of uh, independent uh, regulatory schemes. Um, and the industry's preferred regulator, IPSO, uh, has been described uh, as an industry complaints handling service uh, that lacks uh, total uh, independence. Um, but like the Australian equivalent, it too really lacks the power or the inclination, one or the other, to uphold standards uh, in anything like a, a, a compulsory uh, way. Um, Ipso has the power to issue fines for serious and systematic breaches of the code. Um, but in eight years of existence, it's never once started the investigatory process that could end in fines being issued. And the reason for that, if it's not obvious, is that the only uh, connection between members and the regulator 
is a rather flimsy contractual relationship which the member can uh, which allows the member to leave at any point um so if ipso finds newspapers if it starts issuing fines more readily than it has previously what's going to happen those newspapers are going to leave now if newspapers start leaving ipso ceases to uh, exist so it's not in ipso's interest to start finding newspapers it's not in its interest uh, to uphold its own standards uh, rigorously which means there remain countless individuals who are affected by and have their lives destroyed by intrusive press coverage all for the sake of titillation without any effective redress they can't afford to go to court and the regulator won't use its powers because it's worried about it continuing to exist and this remains a serious problem ipso has received over a hundred thousand complaints uh, since it came into existence, only a tiny proportion of those are ever upheld by the regulator. So you've got more chance statistically of winning the lottery than you have of having a complaint upheld by Ipso uh, against a newspaper. And um, just to add to the statistical information, 10% of uh, complaints, so far as we can tell, um, are uh, relate to intrusion into shock or grief. So 10% of those complaints. Um, the other curious feature of Ipso's decision making, and perhaps this also explains why it hasn't issued any fines or sanctions uh, yet. Um, if a newspaper during the course of the complaint agrees suddenly uh, that um, it has breached the code and it does something about it if it takes remedial action ipso stops investigating and doesn't make a decision on whether there's been a breach or not so in those circumstances where actually it's blindingly obvious that there has been a breach if the newspaper acts preemptively um, it preserves its um, compliance record because Ipso won't take action against it. So the system in our country, as in Australia, is both in need of uh, reform. What a disgusting, scuzzy piece of journalism. For which Hornery and the Sydney Morning Herald have quite rightly apologised. I can make no comment on the extent to which that sorrow is genuine um we may at some point be able to judge from future actions if hornery never again does anything like this then his apology is believable but if he's back doing something like this in the next year or two then we'll be able to draw our conclusions from that. And the same goes for the newspaper that sanctioned and then published this appalling breach of privacy in the first place. Um, I'm quite heartened by the reaction from around the world, the global condem condemnation. 
uh, of of uh, what Honoré did. And I take a little bit of heart from uh, the way that he did clearly uh, uh, over the weekend uh, at least manage to read the room uh, and apologize rather than doubling down and going for the kind of I'm being cancelled arguments that we've heard quite a lot from similar publications and similar individuals in similar circumstances before. But Paul is absolutely right. This is all to do with regulation, the lack thereof of effective regulation, because if you create or allow to exist circumstances and conditions in which it is possible to get away with this, then people will do it. Um, And we've seen that time and time and time again. And if your regulatory system has no teeth, if it is, how should we put it? Well, an absolute joke, for example. Um, Then these sorts of stories are going to occur. Because bad journalists want to make money out of other people's lives, sometimes out of their joy, sometimes out of their misery, almost always out of their privacy. Uh, And they won't be stopped by their own sense of morality. That's quite clear. They won't be stopped by voluntary self-regulators who volunteer not to self-regulate anything in any effective way. They can only be dealt with by effective regulation, which means statutory regulation or statutory-backed regulation of precisely the type that has been recommended in this country, that was recommended in the aftermath of the uh, Leveson inquiry, and which our own government has promised to prevent from coming into effect and to legislate in such a way as to remove um, additional regulatory requirements that have been on the statute books here for a while, but have not come into force. Paul and I have talked about this before, um, but it's topical right now. Um, In its bid to placate a press whose support wishes to court. But it's an absolutely horrendous thing that was done to Rebel Wilson. Um, Shouldn't have happened. Any humane system of journalism would not allow it to happen. Those seem to be in short supply at the moment. Mm. And it's just disappointing this kind of thing is still happening in 2022 as well. Okay, I want to just finish with briefly mentioning that Julian Assange is set to face US extradition after the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, approved the order under the Extradition Act 2003. The case entered Patel's jurisdiction as Home Secretary last month after the Supreme Court ruled that there was no legal concerns over assurances given by the US authorities over how Assange is likely to be treated. We are now about a week in to the 14 days that Assange has to appeal the decision. No news as yet as to whether that's happening. Uh, But of course, we will keep listeners updated with um, developments on that particular 
story in the next newscast. Uh, I think that rounds us up for today. Thank you very much, Tom and Paul, for your wonderful insights. Thanks, Colette. Thanks, Colette. As ever, follow us on social media and we'll be back with more newscasts in the weeks to come. Thanks very much. Bye.